Hi, I'm Renee. Hi, I'm Sam. And And this this is Laboratory Laboratory Podcast. Nine crack, ten bam. And then yesterday I won one game and mom won one game. And now I just want to play mahjong all the time. Welcome to Laboratory Podcast, exploring the human side of science with recorded interviews of emeritus and retired scientists on the evolution and history of scientific research throughout their careers. So, this is Laboratory Podcast, now recording from our fourth different studio. Yeah, I feel like. There's going to be so many over time, but this is the most prepared we've been so far. (laughs) Um, So it is currently April 2nd as we record this, and we are entering into our third week of quarantine with my parents in Orleans, Massachusetts. So we've been having a fun time um, getting used to not seeing other human beings, um, hanging out and trying to do work from afar and working from home and getting things done. And we decided that this was a great time to dive into our idea that we've wanted to do for a while, which was we want to each dive into a different story and share it with one another, whether it is a topic in science, a person who used to do science way back when, or anything in between. And we wanted to each look up our own topic that we were interested and share it with the other person. Yes, I have always been interested in stories from the past, thus this podcast, and thus trying new things and expanding our range. Especially when we have yet to get the capacity to do interviewing over Zoom and also, I feel like Zoom is a little overwhelmed right now. So, But also, thank you, Zoom, for being there for us in these times. We appreciate it. But in the meantime, I mean, what better way to experiment than do what we can with the two of us? Right. Especially when we're in one space for the next couple Undetermined weeks. amount of time. Question mark. Dun, we dun, hope dun. that you are also doing well out there and not going stir-crazy Um, Taking care of yourself so you could be taking care of others. Yeah. That's why we do this. So what's our topic today? That's a great question. So Sam has a story on a topic. I have a story on a scientist. And the other person does not know what the other person is talking about. Um, So this will be their first time hearing this story. Who wants to go first? You want me to go first? Do you want to go first? I want to go first. Okay. Okay. So I dove into the topic of disease and pandemics through history and the understanding of how we got to where we have got to today with quarantining methods and just generally learning from the past for disease and outbreaks. So As long as humans have lived in close proximity to one another, they have also had to deal with another cohabitator called disease. Disease, the name whose, uh, their origins date back to medieval times, the name. And if you look at it more closely, it separates into dis-ease, meaning you're not at ease. Your body does not know uh, how to rest. And when it does not know how to rest, the energies become chaotic. 
And I love this part, especially referring to the Middle Ages, um, because largely what people understood the body to have in it that caused disease was the four humors. And this idea was thought to be originated by Hippocrates in the 4th century BC. He was born uh, in 460 BC. Hippocrates was a Greek physician known as the father of medicine in recognition of his contributions to the field as the founder of the Hippocratic School of Medicine. Uh, His intellectual school revolutionized medicine in ancient Greece and established it as a discipline distinct from other fields. And he had this theory that uh, he believed that diseases were caused naturally, not because of superstitions or gods. He separated the discipline of medicine from religion, and he believed and argued that disease was not a punishment inflicted by the gods, but rather the product of environmental factors, diet, and living habitats. He's a smart man. Yes, thank goodness for Hippocrates, (laughs) as we'd all be subject to the gods. And not understand disease as we know it today. Um, And what he writes, so he goes into the nature of what uh, these four humors are in the nature of man. He describes them, the four humors, as follows. He says, the human body contains blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. Those are the four humors. And these are the things that make up its constitution and cause its pains and health. Health is primarily that state in which these constituent substances are in the correct proportion to each other, both in strength and quantity, and are well mixed. Pain occurs when one of the substances presents either a deficiency or an excess, or is separated in the body and not mixed with others. So that causes disease, your four humors. Not getting along. Not getting along. And going into further depth with the four humors, so we have blood or sanguine, phlegmatic or phlegm, caloric, yellow bile, or melancholic, black bile. And how they were composed in the body were considered to determine a person's personality and health concerns. And everybody was thought to contain some measure of each of these humors. Since all these humors were believed to be in the blood, and since it was believed that the disordered complexion, or dis-ease, the humans could transform into unwanted secondary humors if they were diseased. So people thought bloodletting or phlebotomy, um, leeching, all of these ancient practices allowed the unwanted humors to be removed from the body before the liver could produce more clean, pure blood. That's where you get all of that. So the leeches are sucking out your melancholy from your blood. Or your sanguine. Got it. Yes. Um, But I also, uh, in the uh, vein of trying to be as accurate as possible, and I am an amateur historian, I don't know, scientist, um, I want to make note that I saw that um, Galen, another notable Greek master of medicine, is really responsible for influencing the whole medical world and the regulation of humorism and its understanding of how to deal with diseases uh, up through the Middle Ages. Hippocrates put this idea out there, but Galen was the one that was like, guys, we need to actually do this, and he was the one... Um, I guess, identified as making it really a thing. All right. So up through probably up to the mid-1900s like would be the bloodletting. And I'm not going to get into what happened then. I'm going to keep going with history. (laughs) So uh, Hippocrates was born uh, 460 BC, and about 30 years after he was born, one of the earliest recorded mass diseases or pandemics of human history ran rampant during the Peloponnesian War. In 430 BC in Athens, uh, this disease, uh, most likely typhoid fever, because it had symptoms of fever, thirst, bloody throat, and tongue, 
Bloody throat. Yeah, I know. Gross, right? Uh, red skin and lesions. It weakened the Athenians greatly and was a major factor in their defeat by the Spartans. Uh, as much as two-thirds of the population died in that pandemic. And after that, fi- there are 15-plus notable pandemic outbreaks that changed the course of human history. It's not just everyone's talking about the Spanish flu. That was um, the most recent big outbreak, but there were countless others. This has been around for a while. So I'm not going to go into all of them. I'll just hit a few of them and keep going. So in uh, 165 AD, we had the Antonine Plague, uh, began with the Huns infecting the Germans who passed it to the Romans. And eventually, uh, the plague continued for about 15 years until about 180 AD, and the lives lost counted to 5 million. Oof, I know. Then you have 2050 AD, the Siberian Plague, named after the Christian Bishop of Carthage. I like all the gory details, but I won't give you these gory <laughs> details. Um, basically, uh, people started living in cities and in really close proximities. Those in the cities fled to the country to escape infection, but ended up spreading the disease further. It allegedly started in Ethiopia, passed through northern Africa into Rome, and then into Egypt and northward. Then in 540 AD, you have the Justinian Plague. It uh, changed the course of the empire, the Roman Empire, stopping Emperor Justinian's plans to bring the Roman Empire back together and caused massive economic hardship. It can also be credited by creating an apocalyptic atmosphere that spurred the rise of Christianity. So all these people were dying. There's a lot of plagues. People were fighting over Christianity. And this outbreak changed the course of that. Now we have Christianity, too. It's uh, This is believed to be the first significant appearance of the bubonic plague, too, and was carried by rats and spread by fleas. And it killed about two, 25 to 50 million people, roughly 26% of the world population. That's a lot. So then we get to the 1300s, 1350 Black Death. Everyone has probably heard of this at some point in their life. There were actually several cases of the Black Death. Um, The Black Death overall was responsible for the death of one-third of the world population, and it's alleged to have started in Asia, then moved west in caravans, entering through Sicily in 1347 AD, um, when plague sufferers arrived in the port of Messina, spread throughout Europe rapidly, and dead bodies became so prevalent that many remained rotting on the ground and created a constant stench in cities. I know all the good stuff. I'm glad we do not do that anymore. And that affected the world because England and France were so incapacitated by the plague that the countries called a truce to their war that they had going on. The British feudal system collapsed when the plague changed the economic circumstances and demographics. It ravaged populations in Greenland. Vikings lost their strength to wage battle against native populations. And the exploration of North America halted. So after that, then we get the Columbian Exchange. Um, That's counted as a pandemic. Basically that uh, in 1492, uh, Westerners, well, I guess Europeans were arriving to the Americas. And that's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's it, 1492. (laughs) Uh, So uh, long story short, Christopher Columbus arrived on the island of Hispaniola. He met with the Taino people who had a population. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that wrong. Uh, They had a population of about 60,000, but by 1548, the population stood at less than 500 because of all the smallpox and related diseases that Europeans brought. 
not comforting whatsoever. Yes. Um, and also just want to make a note that research in 2019 even concluded that the deaths of some 56 million Native Americans in the 16th and 17th centuries, um, their deaths largely through disease, may have altered the Earth's climate as vegetation growth on previously tilled land drew more CO2 from the atmosphere and caused a cooling event. So not only did it affect human history, it affected the world climate history. Interesting, right? So I'm going to speed through the rest of these because this is probably the most of what people know. In 1300s through the 1600s, we have great plagues in London. Black death, bubonic plagues. Gross, gross, gross. They killed <laughs> millions of people. Then you get into these, this idea of quarantine. Oh, I'm going to talk about that. But that's when people started to identify that quarantine was a beneficial thing. Um, and in Britain, people were isolated to their houses, and then if you went out, you had to carry a white pole in public, notifying that your family had the disease in their house. Ooh. And cats and dogs were believed to carry the disease, so we're talking about the bubonic plague ravaging London from the 1300s through the 1600s. So there was a wholesale massacre of hundreds of thousands of animals on the River Thames. Um, in 1665, that was one of the last and worst centuries-long outbreaks, um, killing 100,000 Londoners in seven months, uh, and people were forcibly shut into their homes to prevent the spread of the disease. Red crosses were painted on their doors along with a plea for forgiveness. Lord, have mercy upon us. So if you saw that on someone's door, that family had it, the disease. That outbreak tapered off around 1666, around the same time that another destructive event, the Great Fire of London, began in a bakery. So London could not catch a break for <laughs> 300 years, and yet they still became a world power. So uh, then we go through the 1800s. You have cholera pandemics, love in the time of cholera. I don't read that. I haven't read that book. I would like to. I've never heard of it. Yes, you should read it. Um, and then we get to the 1918 Sp Spanish flu. Um, and that resulted in 50 million deaths worldwide. Funny little side note. So, um, Renee, do you know why it's called the Spanish flu? I'm now assuming this is a trick question and it has nothing to do with Spain. It does have to do with Spain. Oh, I have no idea. So, what was going on in 1918 was World War I. And a lot of the countries participating in World War I had a censorship law for their newspapers that anything other than the news or like positive things, um, I'm generalizing here, yeah. um, weren't able to be printed. But in France and specifically in the United States and Kansas, they uh, discovered this flu and like started reporting on it, but they weren't allowed to give it to the press. So they discovered it in like February, March of 1918. But it wasn't until um, the spring when Spain, who is neutral in World War One, they started noticing a massive outbreak or just a couple more people than usual and began reporting it in their news. And they were... Um, I guess, recognized as the rest of the world by being really, like, whistleblowing about it or just making huh. it, they were hyping it up. So they, uh, and in Spain, they believed it to have come from France, so they called it the French flu, but the rest of the world was like, oh, Spain's reporting on this. What is going on? This disease coming out of Spain, and then it locked on and got its name, the Spanish flu, which is unfortunate. So sad. And leads me to... Be sad about the naming policies and don't hate the people that these diseases are named after. 
If it's named after a group of people, don't be mean to them, especially in 2019. Can I be mean to Corona beer? You can be mean to Corona beer. Okay, cool. Just don't be mean to Chinese people. I had no intention of doing so. So, uh, speeding through all of that, because now I'm talking for a really long time. (laughs) I wanted to um, also identify quarantine. I brought it up before. Um, In the 1600s. Oh, no, sorry. In the 14th century. So, like I said, between the 13th and 1600s. um, The practice of quarantine began. 14th century. Uh, began in an effort to protect coastal cities from plague ec- epidemics. Uh, the Venice port in particular, uh, the, uh, they required authorities to have ships from infected ports to sit anchor for 40 days before landing. And the origin of the word quarantine comes from quarantinario. And Wait, what is quarantinario? It stands for 40 days. All right. Roughly. Oh, that makes sense. Yes, if you're Italian, numbers. Right. <laughs> well, the waiting period, that's what the waiting period became known as because they were waiting for four. So quarantine ario, um, quar, quarantine. quarantine, yeah. Yes. Quarter, four. And then as the opinions of the disease changed, the isolation period shrank from uh, 40 to 30 days. Trentinario, 30 days. But by that time, the original name stuck. So we have quarantine. Instead of trentatine? Mm-hmm. Got it. Exactly. And then I have some stories about uh, yellow fever in Philadelphia in 19, uh, 1793, um, where that was one of the first times, I guess, in United States history that people were quarantined. Um, trentatined. Yes, trentatined. <laughs> uh, they faced this disease um, And then they also bled their patients of infected blood and gave them wine as a way to help them with their ails. Um, And also a popular theory on stopping the disease was quarantine sailors at the Lazaretto, a hospital outside the Philadelphia city. Um, But this disease spread through mosquitoes, so quarantine was not so effective. But The The mosquitoes didn't listen to the quarantine rules? They didn't, but they listened to the cold snap that eventually killed them. That's useful. Thank you, climate, in that moment. Yes, yes, yes. Um, oh, um, the other story that I got really excited about was Typhoid Mary. And everyone's probably, I've seen a lot of people put this up on their websites and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But I've never actually known the story of Typhoid Mary. And the quick and dirty version of Typhoid Mary was in 1907. Mary Mallon, better known as Typhoid Mary, uh, was an Irish-born cook who carried the bacteria that causes typhoid fever, uh, which is a form of salmonella that can cause fever, diarrhea, and death light, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, she herself was immune to the disease, but when authorities figured out that her work as a cook had caused the city's typhoid outbreak, she was sent to North Brother Island for a three-year quarantine, and she promised never to cook for others ever again, but she broke her word. And she was especially fond of making peach ice cream for people, so she, <laughs> you as a baker, I'm sure, can understand. So, Then again, when she was apprehended in 1915, she was sent back to the island for the rest of her life. 23 more years. Poor Mary. (laughs) She just wanted to cook. She didn't want to give you peach ice cream. She wanted to share her food with people. Right. Right. Um, I am going to end uh, because I found some little excerpts of people's, uh, I guess, first account stories uh, from the CDC, they do a little storytelling. They have, uh, what is it called? 
on the CDC's website, you can find uh, the Pandemic Influenza Storybook, and it's a series of first account stories of the 1918 flu. I'll do two of them. Okay. So the first is uh, Betty Sompy, who is from Pennsylvania, and who has a little bias because I was like, I too what a surprise. from Pennsylvania. So here's Betty's story. My family was living in Erie, Pennsylvania in 1918. My mother told me when I was almost four years old in February 1919 that I became ill with influenza. My condition was critical and I had been delirious for many hours when our family doctor was able to get an experimental medication described as a shot for me. He told my parents he could offer no other hope. My parents agreed to the treatment. At the time, a neighbor child was also sick with influenza, but his family refused the treatment offered by the doctor. Neither one of us was expected to live through the night. He didn't. My mother called the doctor the next morning because I was awake and asking for something to eat, but she was afraid to feed me. He told her he would be right over. Doctors made house calls back then. The boy who died was in kindergarten with me. We already had a kindergarten for four- and five-year-olds because our school was a training facility for a nearby teacher's college. This is the story the way it has always been told to me. Since I am the only member of my family still living, I have no further confirmation except the outcome. I am still here at the age of 92 to tell the tale. We got the first, one of the first shots. That's crazy, right? Um, and then there, the final story I want to tell is about cures, finding a cure. And all there's so many different stories about what people thought cured these things. Of course. Right? We've gone from the four humors and mm -hmm. bloodletting to modern day technology, having mm -hmm. a shot. Um, so this story comes from Elmer Bud Pancake. And he is uh, from Wyoming. The storyteller in particular is Margarita Pancake. So she's storing, telling the story about Elmer. It goes, my father Elmer, Bud, Pancake, grew up around Lusk, Wyoming. During the great flu pandemic of 1918, there was a country doctor who boasted that he had never lost a patient. His secret weapon was rotgut whiskey. He would pour the whiskey into a patient to get them to cough up the phlegm. During the pandemic, he ran out of whiskey, and there was none other to be had in the community. The only whiskey in Lusk was locked up in the sheriff's office as evidence for a bootlegger's trial. <laughs> the sheriff refused to release the liquor. So the doctor got a few prominent citizens together for a kind of vigilante committee that promptly seized the whiskey, depriving the sheriff of its evidence. Seize the whiskey. Right. Seize the whiskey for medicine, <laughs> for science. If you are interested in more stories, again, you can go to the CDC's websites, uh, cdc.gov slash publications backslash pan flu for more stories like that. Um, also, the other, um, the majority of the other information I have done research for is history.com. Um, and New York Times has some really good articles too. And if you want more stories, uh, a couple of nonfiction books that are good. Um, the Great Influenza by John M. Barry. It examines the 1918 flu pandemic. And we have Pale Horse, Pale Rider of Catherine Ann Porter. It was published in 1939. Um, considered such an exceptional depiction of the suffering caused by the influenza that Alfred W. Crosby Jr., Professor Emeritus of History, Geography, American Studies, um, also a Bostonite, 
dedicated his book to it. You also have The Hot Zone, a terrifying true story by Richard Preston, uh, his nonfiction account about the Ebola virus that has really great reviews on Barnes & Noble. I was going to read you one, but I don't want to now. Um, and also one pandemic and a, or one outbreak of a virus we haven't talked about, but I wanted to touch on was the AIDS epidemic. Um, there's a great book called And the Band Played On, Politics, People, and the AIDS Epidemic, a book by the San Francisco journalist Randy Schiltz, and chronicles the discovery and spread of the human immunodeficiency virus and acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So... With that, I hope that was plenty of fodder for you to learn, I learned about so much. what has happened in the past and where we are today. I yeah. didn't really get into modern medicine, but only I think we so all, much time. There's right. future ones you can do that in if you want. It's true. But I think knowing a little bit about where we've come from in pandemics and recognizing that we don't have to walk around with white poles anymore. I'm appreciative that we are no longer walking around with white poles. I'm appreciative that we have already discovered that quarantines can be useful. It's true. Thank you, Venice. Thank and you, I am Venetians. appreciative that we have better sewer systems and we don't have to be piling up people outside of our houses. It's true. Yeah, one of the stories I did want to get into was Jon Snow um, mm-hmm. doing, the, uh, doing the research to figure out that a lot of the cholera epidemics were coming from water outbreaks. And he like did science sleuthing. And if there isn't a movie about how he sleuthed <laughs> that out, because he got really into it. Science sleuths. Right? There should be. Work on it. Jon Snow. Get on it. Savior. All right. So, what do you got? I'm going to make Sam guess what I'm going to talk about. A scientist. <clears throat> Useful. Okay. Um, That's correct, though. So, right? that is correct. So, why this is also coronavirus quarantine themed in a way, but in a very adjunct way, um, adjacent way. In the last few weeks, we've been at this house. We have been going through old photos of me and my family, trying to sort them. They're so cute. (laughs) And Sam learned that I was obsessed with something as a kid. What is it? The beach? Butterflies. There you go. I was obsessed with butterflies. I was the kid that I think in about 90% of the photos of me up until the age of six or seven, I had butterflies on. Everywhere. (laughs) On her clothes, in her hair. Outside, too. They would flock to her. Yeah. So I was butterfly obsessed. So I decided to talk today, and I'm going to give you two things right now. One, please excuse any mispronunciations, because I promise you there's going to be a few in here. Or be kind if you let us know that we mispronounced. Correct me nicely. Um, And then the fact that I have a handful of references I got this from. So the woman I'm going to be talking about today is Maria Sibella Merian. Can you say that again? Nope. Maria Sibella Merian. That is her name. I'm going to be calling her Maria. Sounds great. Um, And I'm going to just acknowledge all my references right now. Um, There are a handful of websites I got this from. There's botanicalartandartists.com. There was sabellamerian.com. 
There's Britannica.com, Wikipedia, and then there's two articles, one from The Atlantic titled The Woman Who Made Science Beautiful, and one from The New York Times titled A Pioneering Woman of Science Reemerges After 300 Years. Wow. So that's where I got all this information from. Um, So we're going to go on a little journey about Maria's life. Let's please. So Maria was born on April 2nd in 1647. Uh, She was born in Frankfurt, Germany, and at that time, it was a center for silk trade. And therefore, the silkworm was very important to the town. Uh, She was born to a family of Swiss heritage. Her father was Matthias, and her mother was Johanna. And her father was an engraver and a publisher. But he passed away in in 1650, when she was only three years old. So in 1651, her mother remarried to Jacob Merrill, And he was a renowned uh, still-life painter. And he encouraged Maria to be able to paint as well. Um, So he taught her how to paint using watercolors, most likely. And they assumed that because women were not allowed to sell oil paintings in certain cities in Germany back then. Boo. Germany. Um, In 1660, at age 13, she started to collect insects and raise silkworms. Um, She began to paint the insects and plants from ones that she collected. And through painting, she recorded their life cycles, noting change and movement. She depicted moths coming from eggs and hatching larvae, molts and cocoons, through being adults and even distinguished the male versus female adults. Um, And it was very um, unique that she was a girl at that point in time who was not afraid of getting her hands grubby and dirty and doing all this work. Um, and a lot of these articles noted that fact. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I hate getting my hands dirty. <laughs> um, civilized. So there's a direct quote from one of her publications here that I'm going to read. And it says, I spent my time investigating insects. At the beginning, I started with silkworms in my hometown of Frankfurt. I realized that other caterpillars produce beautiful butterflies or moths, and that silkworms did the same. This led me to collect all the caterpillars I could find in order to see how they changed. So she was really interested in looking at this change of the caterpillars and the silkworms. In 1665, when she was 16 years old, she got married, and shortly after she had her first child and moved to Nuremberg, which is where her husband was from. Um, She continued to collect caterpillars and paint flower specimens that came from gardens. And she also taught painting to unmarried daughters of wealthy families, which helped her family financially and increased their social standing. Um, And this also gave her access to some of the finest gardens that existed of the elite. And so she got to use those gardens as more um, inspiration for her art. The butterfly painter. So in 1675, she publishes her first collection of engravings called Blooming Book, which is the Book of Flowers. Um, It had three volumes, the first which was published in 1675, and all three were published by 1680. And it's called New Blooming Book, which is the New Book of Flowers. And it's a collection of 36 engraving plates. Um... And in 1679, she published her second collection of engravings. And I am going to tell you this in English, and then you can hear me try to muddle through it, not in English. Oh, boy. 
But the book is called The Caterpillar, Marvelous Transformation, and Strange Floral Food, which Draupin, Wonderbar, Verwenlug, and Sonderbear Blumenhog. We're looking for German tutors if you <laughs> would like to help us. Sounds wunderbar. Uh, this is what is considered to be her life's work. Um, it was a result of two decades of observations. In this set, she demonstrated the life cycle of the butterfly and how it transforms from a caterpillar to a butterfly. She was the first to portray caterpillars and butterflies with the plants that nourished them. And with the empirical research, she could confirm what Francesco Reddy had already concluded in 1668, which was that insects were born from eggs and not from spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation was the belief that insects just spontaneously emerged from the mud. And that was the widely held belief at that point in time. Could you imagine? Um, So at this point, there were other publications on insects, but none with their full life cycle and their ecological connections. Um, And which Maria did this by showing the relationships of animals on the plants and looking through a wider lens than others. So she was really focused on the connection of the plants and the animals versus just studying this one organism out of context as to where it lives and what it feeds on and how it habitually moves around. In these books, she also had text describing the metamorphosis stage, illustrated the environmental factors that influenced the growth of the insects, and the relationship of plants used as nourishment to the eggs being laid near those plants. Um, So she had a few points that separated her from others based on her observations. She had some really unique observations, such that the larvae would shed their skin completely three to four times. She saw that ways in which they could create their cocoon. She looked at their mode of locomotion, and that when they would have no food, they would devour one another, they being the caterpillars. Wow. Um, She also realized that the plants that they laid their eggs on happened to also be the plants that they fed off of the most because they wanted their food to be near where they were creating new life. Another point that separated her from others is that she enjoyed painting from live organisms. So she could accurately depict a lot of the colors. Since preserving specimens, you often lose the color. Um, So this resulted in these really gorgeously vibrant paintings that were very accurate. The second volume of this was published in 1683, and each of them had 50 engravings. And these engraving plates would have plants with the caterpillars on it and maybe a spider and something else. So it has like this whole story on one engraving plate. This publication was popular in certain parts of high society, but is largely ignored by scientists since it was published in the vernacular and not in Latin. And Latin was the official language of science back then. And she did not know Latin, and it was not published. In 1685, Maria left her husband. It was not a happy marriage. Um, and she moved to a religious commune. Uh, during, and it was the Labadists. And she lived there with her mother and two daughters. During this time, she lived in a home owned by Cornelius Van Sommelsdijk. God bless you. S-O-M-M-E-L-S-D-I-J-K. Sounds about right. Yes. Um, And he was the governor of Suriname, which is a South American country. 
and this allowed her to begin studying the flora and fauna of Suriname and South America. During this time, she also studied Latin, again, the official language of science, and natural history. In 1691, Maria's mother passed away, and Maria moved to Amsterdam. Suddenly, she was in this world that was fueled by trade and the Dutch Empire. And here, women could have their own businesses and earn money. So she sold her art to collectors. And through this business, she got to know prominent residents of Amsterdam. Many of these folks worked for the Dutch East India Company and Dutch West India Company, which were the trading companies back then. And that allowed her to explore their exotic collections of butterflies and moths that they collect during their travels doing trade. These were often pinned on wooden trays, like you see collections in museums. However, if you remember, she preferred organisms that were alive and interacting. Yes, her little pets. Yes, in the environment. Um, so she was always motivated to study these creatures alive. In 1699, Maria was sponsored by the city of Amsterdam to go on a trip to Suriname with her younger daughter, Dorothea Maria, which, by the way, at that point, Dorothea was married to somebody from Suriname because they were in that commune together. Yeah. And that's how that works. Yes. So at the age of 52, her and her youngest daughter headed out on a ship for what was planned to be a five-year expedition. Now, this was, again, audacious in many ways. Um, she was a woman doing this in a very male-dominated scientific world. This was one of the first expeditions solely with a scientific purpose. Most of that time were political, economic, military-driven that happened to do science on the side or discover things on the side. She traveled alone and without protection, and she financed the trip herself through selling her drawings in Amsterdam because, again, in Amsterdam, women were able to make money through their own businesses. She was also the first European woman to independently go on a science expedition to South America. Look at her go. Get it. Um, so they settled in Paramaribo. Now say it with confidence. <laughs> <laughs> they settled in Paramaribo, where they collected, studied, and composed illustrations of the plants, insects, and animals from a wide variety of ecosystems including vegetable gardens, banks of rivers, and sugar plantation. She also worked with indigenous people, paying them to bring her insects and learning how they use these resources naturally. Um, there is also a side story about how folks offered her slave labor to work with her, and she was more interested in learning what they use and how they use this instead of using these people with no gain for their own knowledge. Also good for her. She's great. In 1701, her trip was cut short um, due to Maria becoming infected with malaria. So at this point, in this time, she sold the specimen she collected and proceeded to work on producing engravings based on these adventures. Good trade. Yes. Did she get better? You will learn. In 1705, she published Metamorphosis Insectorium Surinamisium, which is the Insects and Metamorphosis of Suriname, basically. Um, and this book was written in Latin. Yay, she learned. But it's also published in Dutch because she wanted to appeal to both audiences. Yeah. Um, so this one contained 60 new engravings. And it was the first work on the natural history of Suriname. 
This text included observations about the ecosystem of Suriname, including discovering a large range of unknown plants and animals, for which she noted their habitat, habits, their, and their uses to indigenous people. She drew images of plants, frogs, snakes, spiders, iguanas, local fruits, one of which she's really known for is the pineapple. There's a very famous picture of a pineapple and the plant with some flies around it, and that was done by her. No uh, way. Beetles and ants. The ecological interactions she included in this work brought back this vibrant and interwoven world of Suriname to England, and she was urged to publish it by folks. And so this work was considered to be her most magnificent piece uh, produced. So she has the metamorphosis, caterpillars, and their fauna being her like seminal work of what she was known for. That was what she was really originally passionate about. And then this one, which is the most impressive and large work that she did. In 1715, she suffered a stroke. She became partially paralyzed and could no longer work. On January 13th, 1717, she passes away in Amsterdam. A collection of her work, I'm going to stumble through this one, Eucarium Ordis Elementum e Paradoxa Metamorphosis was published posthumously. Her legacy lives on. Oh, yes. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Yay. So we're going to talk about the impact that Maria had in the science world. Let's do. So Maria's engravings had a major impact in the world of ecology. Most European butterflies did not have a scientific name when she began studying them. And Carl Linnaeus only started to create the universal classification system for organisms, which is the kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, that has an acronym, doesn't it? Kings play chess on fine green silk. Yeah. Um, so he only started to create that system 20 years after she published her Suriname research and about 40 years after her death. Carl Linnaeus and others were able to identify 100 or so new species based on her work in Suriname. In 1735 and 1753, Linnaeus classified the animals she cataloged in Suriname using her work to describe 56 animals and 39 plants. After her death, she was so revered for her work amongst biologists that a number of taxa and two genera were named after her. Taxa is any of those classifications. As well as three butterflies, a moth, a bug with no common name. She also had a bird-eating spider named after her, another spider, a toad, a bird, a lizard, and a snail. Also some flowers. So there's a lot of organisms out there that have reference to her uh, last name, her middle name, in their official Latin names. I can't wait to come across that bird when we play Wingspan. (laughs) Her paintings of the Suriname animal and plant life were so accurate that entomologists, those are people who study insects, could identify 73% of the butterflies and moths by genius and 66% as exact species. And for those who do not deal with this on a daily basis, sometimes the difference of one species to another is so minute that you need such detailed observations. It is sometimes based on the presence or absence of another set of legs, of a certain indent in their body, of the length of a certain antennae or something. So the fact that they were able to identify these species just through her drawings, really play to how detailed 
she was in her art and how on point with the actual organism she was. The fact that she also had multiple stages of life really help as well because at some points you can't identify what makes species unique from one another, but later in life or earlier in life you can. In the last quarter of the 20th century, her work has been reevaluated, validated, and printed over and over again. Her portrait was on the 500 DM note before Germany converted to the euro. And she had a portrait on a stamp. And there's a lot of schools named after her as well. She had a Google Doodle on April 2nd, 2013 to mark her 366th birthday. In 2005, there was a research vessel, Maria S. Marion, in Germany. And there have been many art exhibits with her engravings. Folks and museums collect them. They're very rare to find these original printed ones. And there is a large collection in the Royal Collection. Suriname was republished in 2017 with updated scientific descriptions based on things that folks have now discovered about the organisms that she had drawn back then. Great. So it lives on and continues to evolve. It lives on. And you could search her work. If you put her name, M-A-R-I-A space M-E-R-I-A-N, and you search them, we're going to post some of the, her artwork oh, great. on Instagram because it's really cool. Yes, we should, especially the pineapple. Uh, yes, the pineapple. Um, and you can see how beautiful these drawings are. She included holes and leaves. She included spider webs and insects flying around. And you really get a picture of the environment that she was looking at in that point in time. So there is a story of a artist scientist. I love that story. Oh, <laughs> she just got really into painting her little she animal wanted friend. To paint Insect the silkworms, yes. And it all started with those silkworms and those caterpillars poking and prodding at those cocoons to figure out how they formed in there and what was happening. Mm. So if you too find yourself painting anything of that nature, keep going. You may and have a boat named us. after you. <laughs> oh, and share it with us. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's my quarantine adjacent story. I like that. Thanks. You're welcome. So this has been our first endeavor into our own research and science history and sharing the stories that we've learned. I already have somebody I want to do it on next, so let's do another. I would love to do another. <laughs> if any of you have any suggestions. Let us know. I think that for right now, we are going to continue doing this for a little bit. We're still putting out some other episodes of interviews we have backlogged that we need to produce. Um but in the meantime, let's see how this goes and go on this coronavirus adventure with all of you and make do with what we can and see what we could create in the meantime. Exactly. Taking an advantage of a, of a situation. Take advantage of the fact that we're here together. Yeah. So without further ado, we'll wrap this up by saying thank you so much for listening. We we're hope still that a you're new well. podcast. We're still a new podcast. And we're ever expanding in these unprecedented times. <laughs> um, you can find us at Instagram at Laboratory Podcast, where you will soon hopefully see some really pretty photos that Maria has drawn. You can check out our website at laboratory-podcast.com. We have Twitter, and maybe I'll tweet something today. So, I don't know. If you see that I tweeted on April 2nd, it's because I said this, and I now feel like I've bounded myself to doing that. We have a Twitter at Laboratory Pod. We are also on Facebook 
And you should look us up, Laboratory Podcast. We have an email, laboratorypodcast at gmail.com. You can shoot us an email. Yeah, and honestly, if you if you feel like reaching out, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and hope that you are doing well. I can't say it enough. In whatever state you are, wherever Please stay safe. Please stay healthy. Please check in on your friends and family from afar. And thank you to all of the health workers, all of the people on the front line and essential businesses, everyone and anyone who's putting themselves out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank we you, appreciate you. it. And thank you to science for helping us. Yes, science. Get this far and not bloodletting anymore. <laughs> Although I don't know if that's helpful in any other particular area, but this disease <laughs> is not that. <laughs> There's a little virus, actually. Anyway, reach out. Thank you. Stay safe, everybody. Bye. I need to water my plants. Please remember me to water my plants today. Because because I brought them up last week and then I was like, I'm going to change their water every few days. And then I keep not doing that.